morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to come and uh, hear your word. Lord, let these words today be a blessing to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Scott mentioned last week, Mark is definitely a man of action and very few words. So as a fellow man of few words, I really appreciate that. Um, also, we're going to have to turn to Matthew, Luke, and John today for a little bit of more details on their accounts of this, because if I just stuck to the five verses Scott gave me today, we'd already be done. So, uh, let's start in Mark, though. So, um, we see in Mark, move that... We start with Jesus' baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And in Matthew, we learn, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So we get a little bit of the heart of John the Baptist in this passage. John, uh, whom Jesus said of him in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John had this great privilege of bringing in the Christ, of ushering in his ministry. He's the one that Malachi prophesied about in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And in Isaiah, chapter 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's some pretty high praise, and yet John never really seems to let that fill him up, right? Instead, he has the right uh, perspective between him and Christ. We see his reaction, right, when approached by Jesus, reveals John didn't let that honor fill him with pride. He recognizes that he must become less while Jesus is the one who becomes greater. We have nothing worthy to offer God without him filling us. Um, Until we are covered by the blood of Christ, we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. God in his grace and mercy through the blood of Jesus sets us free from sin and death, makes us co-heirs with Christ and gives us eyes to see the truth and close us in righteousness. So that's the kind of attitude that we see in John and it's the same kind of attitude that we need to have, um, recognizing, right, just as John the Baptist did, right, he must become greater, I must become less. If anyone comes to you and preaches that uh, and elevates you to the level of Christ or brings Christ down to the level of you, let him be damned. And that's not just my words, right? We pull that from Galatians. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. More on that later. John the Baptist maintains right, the correct perspective, pointing others to Jesus. Right? Um, and We see in John the Apostle's account, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So we see those two things here, that John maintains a correct view between him and Jesus, and also that he's pointing others to Jesus. That's our job as well. Jesus himself gave us this mission to point to him in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I've got to confess all right, uh, that sharing the good news with others is something that I struggle with. Um, the only times where I really have much to say is when I'm preaching or teaching math. Um, outside of those two contexts, when I'm talking to someone, I usually say just enough to keep them talking. Because um, I'm much more comfortable listening than I am carrying the conversation. Um, but, right. In those contexts where I do have a little more to say, I am prepared. I come right with a a few words to say when I come to preach or when I'm teaching my math class. I've got content that I need to go over. Um, And that's the same kind of thing that we need to do right when we're uh, sharing our faith. We need to be prepared. And we see this right in 1 Peter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So right in the middle, right, we have our answer. How do we share? We be prepared. And how do we prepare? Well, we need to know the gospel, right? The reason for our hope is Christ and what he did. So we are prepared to tell others about who Christ is, what he did, and why that matters. If you're looking for a place to start, I have some recommended passages. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's a great place to start. Or Colossians 2, 12 to 14. Or Romans all of it, just the whole book of Romans. Read that. Okay. Interesting fact, there are three times in Jesus' ministry when a voice is heard from heaven. One is when Jesus prophesied his death in John 12. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Another time was at Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. From Mark's account in chapter 9, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the third is where we're at today. We return to Jesus' baptism for this. Right? And it gives us a better understanding of who Jesus is. Right? Jesus was baptized by John, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
So a couple of questions get raised here at Jesus' baptism. The first is, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Right? John was preaching a baptism of repentance. So what's going on here? Jesus explains right, that it's to fulfill all righteousness. And in his baptism, Jesus is doing two things. He's demonstrating his obedience to the Father. Right? And he's foreshadowing what's to come. The act of baptism is explained in here, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, in him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so this baptism that Jesus is going is pointing towards his death and resurrection, which is the baptism that we share in with Christ. When we believe in him, we are baptized into that new life. We are dead to our sins, dead to those transgressions, and made new in him. Another question during Jesus' baptism is, what's going on with the dove and the voice from heaven? Um, and this gives us a picture of the Holy Trinity. Right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get this beautiful picture God the Holy Spirit resting on God the Son, while God the Father glorifies him, saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. For we worship God, one God, in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. You may recognize that from the Athanasian Creed. All right, before we get into the temptation of Jesus, let's pause for a moment and investigate a little further right, of what this means for Jesus to be the Son of God. So, as we just saw, Jesus is one person of the Trinity. He is fully God, but he's also fully man. We call this the hypostatic union. And we see this in several places. In John chapter 1, right, we know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Also in Philippians chapter 2, Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in that we see Jesus is God, and he humbled himself right, by taking on this form of a man. So both God, both man. Again in Romans... Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, man, descended from David, and God declared to be the Son of God in the passage we're reading today. Acts chapter 20. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, God, who we read in John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. How did God bleed? Well, he took on a body in the form of Jesus. Right? Again, another mystery that is the Trinity. Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And you can't get much clearer than this. This was our memory verse for today, Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Yeah. Okay, why am I making such a big deal about this? <laughs> uh, because if you're listening closely, you'll hear this kind of heresy preached in several churches today, bringing us up to the level of Christ or him down to us. We're trying to split this nature of Jesus, saying, no, he's just a man, or he's just God. But no, he's both. Right? Paul warned us of this in 2 Corinthians. Right, addressing some false apostles that were calling themselves super apostles. Nowadays they just call themselves apostles. But I'm sure we'll get super apostles soon. Um, Paul starts in verse 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed... Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. A little condemnation there for the church in Corinthian, Corinth. Um, continues his thought in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceiving, uh, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Those who preach here at the church next door are uh, very aware of the high standard that we are held to. In Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we must be very careful with the words that we choose to say up here and be mindful that right, we are going to be held accountable for them. So Jesus is a man, yet at the same time he is God. As the God-man, he is perfect, completely sinless. This is made clear in his Father's declaration. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This comes before Jesus has started his ministry. Right? This is just, I am pleased with you for virtue of you being who you are, Jesus. Right? Can't say that of anyone else, just of the Son of God. And this very declaration is what Satan is going to attack in his temptations. So in Mark 1, verse 12, 
The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to them. So, if Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? Right? James 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, right? as he himself tempts no one. So, what's going on? Well, let's look into that a little bit. So, there's a few views on this temptation. Um, but when it comes to temptation, we're looking at right, this uh, a, a either attempt to right, uh, convince someone to do something or just actually convincing them to do something. Right? We also see that right, in the argument that God can't be tempted. Right? Well, read that full context. God can't be tempted with evil. Right? which he definitely won't be. There are a few verses. Um, if you'll read them in the King James or New King James, it says, right, do not tempt the Lord your God. And uh, what they're talking about there right, is that the Israelites were doing really bad things. Don't tempt him to bring his judgment sooner than you really want him to. Right? Um, so that, there's that aspect of it. But also, with what uh, Satan is doing here, right? Is Jesus really feeling this temptation? And how does temptation work? So in James, we see, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So does Jesus have a desire to do anything wrong? Well, no. But there's three main views. Let's take a look at those views. Right. One says that Jesus is God, so of course he wasn't actually tempted. Others say Jesus is man, so he was tempted, but he just chose not to sin. Another said Jesus is the God-man, so his human nature was tempted, but right, not in his God nature. Which again, that kind of splits Christ in two. He's both God and man at the same time. He's not one half being tempted, one half being not. So it's really kind of this melding of those two ideas. And the way I tend to think about it is I hate olives. Um, so if someone were to come to me and tempt me with an olive, I would turn them down. Even if I hadn't eaten all day, I'd probably still say, no thanks, all right, I, don't, I don't need an olive. All right. Of course, if I hadn't eaten in 40 days, I would eat an entire jar of olives without question. But that's me, thankfully, not so with Jesus. Right? The offer to betray the Father is so repugnant to him that even at his weakest, he's not interested. This points to why Jesus was tempted in the desert. He didn't go through this to show it, how it was done so that we can now go toe-to-toe with Satan. Right? He did it because it's what we can't do. He did it for the very reason he came, to do what we can't do by ourselves. Right? We fail whenever we go up against the devil on our own. Why Jesus is here, right? We can't... Um, so, bah, get a little flustered. <laughs> to do what we can't, right, by living a perfect life, and yet still he took the punishment 
we deserved so that we can be called the children of God. Christ's victory here against Satan harkens back to Adam and Eve's failure in the garden. Satan's strategy in tempting Eve is the exact same strategy he uses here tempting uh, Jesus. He throws doubt on the word of God. He did this in Genesis 3 by saying, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And, Oh, you won't surely die. And then he goes on to suggest a way that seems easier than the path that God offers. Saying, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Except Satan's path always leads to death. So if we turn to Matthew and Luke for more details on this temptation, um, I'm going to end up sticking more to the Matthew section, just for consistency's sake. Right, we'll take a little bit uh, into those three temptations. Temptation number one. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So right off we see Satan throwing doubt on the very thing that God had just told him 40 days earlier. This is my beloved Son. Right? And now he's throwing doubt if you are the Son of God. Okay? And also appealing to his need right, for food. He's hungry. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's a little taunting there as well. Like, go ahead, prove me wrong. Right? Show me what you can do. But of course, Jesus doesn't fall into that trap. Right? He's much more concerned right, about glorifying the Father than trying to look important in front of Satan. Right? Which I think is part of the beauty of the Trinity itself. That Jesus is trying to seek glory for the Father. Right? Which brings God glory, but he is God. So there's this weird, like, my mind is just, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. He's bringing glory to God while remaining completely humble. And it's all because of that beautiful relationship we see within the Trinity. I, I'm, I'm speechless. Jesus' response to this it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, round one to Jesus. Temptation number two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, we see that doubt being thrown on what God had said. We also see that taunting again. Come on, show me what you can do. Right? Throw yourself down. Let the angels catch you. But then he does something which I think is really hilarious. He misquotes or partially quotes Psalm 91. I'm going to go to Psalm 91 and read that whole thing that Satan quotes so, starting in verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. This is the passage that Satan chooses to to quote to Jesus to get him to sin? This passage is actually an encouragement to stay on the right path, to follow God, and a reminder that Jesus is about to have victory over this serpent, that he's going to crush him underfoot. Wow. (laughs) Talk about uh, poor choice of words. Okay. So Jesus' answer, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Which I think kind of has two meanings there, right? I'm not going to put God the Father to the test by jumping off of the temple. But also, Satan, you really shouldn't be putting the Lord to the test. Jesus is saying that to Satan. Round two again to Jesus. Temptation number three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus must be really getting under his skin because Satan's now tipping his hand. right? He's just going straight for uh, what he wants. Fall down and worship me. Okay. Up till now, Satan's tried to make things seem like as what he's offering is for Jesus' benefit. Oh, you need some food? All right, make some food. All right, oh, you want to show off your glory? Go ahead and do that. Now he's just saying, nope, just worship me. All right, the pretense is gone. And he also reveals that he doesn't understand why Jesus has come. Satan is the prince of the air, with the world under his control for now, all right? And he thinks that that's what Jesus is after. He thinks Jesus has shown up to set up some physical kingdom, which, frankly, a lot of the people around Jesus at the time thought that that's what he was going to do as well. Um, but he's not, right? Not at that time. It wasn't time for that yet. Jesus was there to set people free from sin and death, to be the spotless lamb sacrificed for the world, to establish a spiritual kingdom. So Jesus has had enough of this nonsense. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And Satan leaves. Verse 11, The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Much deserved victory and a little break. Um, So, uh, I am not always very eloquent, but I know some people who are. Right? There's a band called the Grey Havens, and they actually made a song about this that really sums this up quite beautifully. Um, and I'm, we're going to play just a little clip of that for you. It's called At Last the King.
One thing I really like in that song is that it's always referred to as the king. At no point right, does Jesus remove that right, from himself. He always was the king. He always is the king and always will be the king. King of kings and Lord of lords. So, even though Satan is called temporarily the prince of the air, Christ is king. Right? He is king and will reign. And even when he was physically at his weakest, that didn't change. Song also lays out quite clearly, right? Sin messed up everything. God came and paid for all the sins with his blood through Jesus and offers forgiveness as a free gift. Read a little excerpt from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, and who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for doing what I cannot for coming and bringing uh, your son, for taking our place on the cross, and for making us clean before you that we can be called the children of God. We look forward to the day when we can spend all of our time with you without distraction, just worshiping the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit forever. Until then, give us the strength to make it through each day, to shine your light in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.